1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemisa Abdelalty from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Wendy Hesford about her book, Violent Exceptions, Children's Human Rights and Humanitarian Rhetorics, which was published by the Ohio State University Press in 2021. Wendy, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, and thank you for having me.
1: So I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. Well, presently, I'm a professor of English at the Ohio State University, and I'm directing a fairly new program called Global Arts and Humanities Discovery Theme, and that's a cross-disciplinary university-wide initiative, which has been amazing to actually have the opportunity to direct because it involves working with faculty as students, undergrad and grad across the colleges of arts and sciences, education, et cetera.
1: That sounds fascinating. Um, so let's uh, dive into the book. How did, how did you come to write Violent Exceptions, first of all?
2: OK, so I've been asked this question in different forms or various ways over the years. and you know, for my other my other work, what what is the thread that unites it all? And actually, I have found a thread uh, that I think does, or is woven throughout my three monographs, and even the co-edited collections to some degree. And, you know, you might think of it as an obsession, you might think of it as a commitment, or maybe it's, you know, both. So I think one of the threads is that I'm very interested in issues that are related to identity formation, subjectivity, and more recently for my last two books, the politics of cultural and legal recognition. And I'm especially interested in how recognition, identity formation shapes the lives of vulnerable communities or marginalized communities. So in my first book, which I published in 1999, so quite a while ago, uh, which was titled Framing Identities, Pedagogy and the Politics of Autobiography, I focused on how faculty, students, and administrators at Oberlin College, where I was working at the time, invoked autobiographical narratives to create themselves or constitute themselves as pedagogical or political subjects. And I was interested in how the academy itself then, university or colleges like Oberlin College, themselves function as sites of identity production by rewarding or silencing certain kinds of autobiographical scripts or practices. You know, so in that book, for example, uh, I look at student activism, student activism around anti-racist or racist. I mean, in both cases, incidents on campus. And what I'm interested in, how in that chapter, was how students use their autobiographical experiences as kind of testimonies about the harms of the college or the harms of certain acts of other students on campus. Um, I also looked at—I'm trying to remember those chapters now. I also looked at how faculty and faculty meetings, senate meetings, included draw on autobiographical experiences as they're debating a consensual clause in their sexual harassment policy. And you can imagine what some of, you know, perhaps the older professors may have said who married students, right, about why they think that's a problematic um, policy to, to prevent or to not allow consensual relations between faculty and students. So that's all to say is that there are just different ways and different contexts in which I was interested in how the various maybe stakeholders, you could say, you know, faculty, students, administrators at that, at that college at the time were using their own narratives or creating their own identity narratives as ways to make change, to influence, or to persuade others. So that was kind of the first hit on that, which built on my dissertation. The next project um, basically involved writing two co-edited collections or editing two co-edited collections with a colleague at Oberlin, Wendy Kozel, who has remained a long time uh, friend, colleague, and co-writer. And the first book that we co-edited, Haunting Violations, which was published in um, 2001, Argues that depictions of reality, quote unquote reality, in testimonial narratives are crafted within the limits and in the interests of special political, social, or even personal projects. So it's again, it's looking at how autobiograph- how autobiography scripts action, not just our sense of ourselves, but action. And then the following uh, collection that we edited called Just Advocacy focused on the gender dynamics of human rights discourses and their intersection with identity-based politics. And we were looking basically in in those chapters and in the chapters that we uh, published from contributors, we were looking for work that engaged that intersection between human rights discourse and identity-based politics at times of national or international crisis. Or times that were signified as times of crisis. Of course, you know this, and this topic comes up in my latest book, *Violent Exceptions*. Anytime that we have a construct like, you know, national or international crisis, it is often represented as a crisis, right? As an exception or as a crisis, when in fact it's often systemic, ongoing, daily um, articulations, depictions, actions of violence. So that book was getting me closer and closer, I think, to to my second monograph, which was called Spectacular Rhetorics, Human Rights Visions, Recognitions, and Feminisms. And that book was really focused on what can be gained by looking at the rhetorical functions of truth-telling discourses within human rights campaigns and cultural production. So truth-telling discourses, again, I would put air quotes around that term, and that would mean in that particular book, or that would in, um, comprise in that particular book, photography, documentary photography, documentary film, autobiography, biography, and activism, specifically activism that invokes the autobiographical. So that's what I meant by truth-telling discourses. So it's, uh, Spectacular Rhetorics is a book that um, is kind of multi-genre, right, in terms of its, its subjects of interest. And the key concept to that book, which carries through to the present book, Violent Exceptions, was the notion of uh, human rights spectacle, a concept that I use to refer to not, not individual images per se, but to the processes of incorporation or recognition that are enabled or mediated by visual representations. And that was part of a larger argument about the ocular epistemology—a big word for for thinking about the visual, the the visual rhetorics, the visual ways of knowing, you know, the construct seeing is believing, et cetera—that underwrites human rights discourse. So, the last chapter of that book, in spectacular childhoods, is called sentimentality and the politics of invisibility, and. That chapter focused on the film Born into Brothels, a documentary film about children growing up in and brothels in India. And that really got me interested in the figure of the child. And I just had a lot of questions about how the you know the figure of the child was being mobilized in film, political film, political practices, uh, policies, et cetera. So really that paved the way for Violent Exceptions, um, Children's Human Rights and Humanitarian Rhetorics.
1: Uh, Just really incredible that there's this this thread sort of tying um, uh, your work together. Um, So I I want to ask you to uh, describe some of the central concepts of the book. So you, you just mentioned the figure of the child. Um, so tell, tell us what you mean when in the book, when you refer to the figure of the child in peril.
2: Okay, so, what do people imagine when they think about the concept of the child in peril that That was one of my central questions. What do people imagine? And the people, quote unquote, in my book, uh, you know are primarily those who are processing, interpreting human rights discourses about children's rights within the United States, even though there's a transnational dimension of the works that are uh, looked at, I'm looking mostly at how they have been appropriated, mobilized, circulated within US media, politics and discourse. To what degree and with what consequences have certain configurations of the child in peril shaped human rights discourse, policy, and action is one of the questions that drives violent exceptions. And also, and I'll speak about both of these in a sec, what is the relationship between the figure of the child in peril and perceptions of childhood innocence? Because those are also concepts that really can't be separated. So I guess maybe traditionally the trope, the child in peril, or commonly might be uh, understood as the child that is vulnerable to bodily harm and who is perceived as deserving of rescue or protection, right? So it's not usually that that trope is deployed as a way to uh, ignore, right? It's not say, oh, look at that child in peril, ignore it, right? It's, it's always a call to action or empathy. The, the figure of the child in peril compels, this is one of the key points in my book, compels humanitarian recognition. The trope is used to often persuade people, and we can see this in the current conflicts going on across the world, that a moral threshold has been crossed right? Within humanitarian and human rights contexts, the child in peril typically refers to a child that is caught in a kind of in-between space or a liminal space in a state of crisis or emergency, right? And these in-between spaces, I argue, suspend children's human rights. So, so- what? the Oh, excuse me, I was just going to say, I was going to ask myself a question. So what's the problem with liminality, right? What's the problem with the in-between space? I think the problem is, is that it refers to a transitional phase, a period in which that child or those children await, right, incorporation into a structure, whether it's like a social structure or symbolic structure of recognition. So they're waiting for. Right, and for some children, that waiting for status, that liminal status, may be perpetual. It may be long lasting. If you think of refugees, refugee children, right, as is the case also for undocumented children. So, I guess the I, I can talk about the relationship between the child in peril and notions of uh, childhood innocence as well. But I guess I would say if there's a if there's one sentence in the book that captures the trope of the child in peril it might be the one that says we need to understand that trope as an effect of power struggles
1: so uh, another phrase that comes up in the book and that you you've almost started alluding to is um the humanitarian paradigm of human rights w- what do you mean by that when you when you speak about the humanitarian paradigm of human rights
2: okay so let me start, I guess, by yeah, speaking more broadly about the the paradigm of human uh, humanitarian paradigm of human rights, and then maybe circle back to child and innocence and the child in peril trope. So, um, I'm sure as listeners know, human rights and humanitarianism are distinct traditions. Right, they're both concerned with human suffering, but human rights focus is on long term goals to eliminate the causes of suffering. Whereas humanitarian interventions typically concentrate on short-term goals or the alleviation of suffering presently. Another way to think about it is that humanitarian intervention turns our attention away from enduring violence or systemic inequities and frames this violence as if it is exceptional as if it's a crisis, as if it's a state of emergency. That reorients how we understand that violence or those harms. So, yes, there are distinct differences between humanitarian and human rights traditions, but they converge, I argue, in the development of children's human rights. And I I think, you know, in the work that I did in looking at the history of uh, humanitarian theories, development, etc., the trope and the spectacle of the suffering child has played a key role. For example, in the mid-20th century, humanitarian orientations to human rights coincided with the formation of UNICEF in 1946, coincided with the inclusion of clauses on children's human rights in the Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. So this was a time when children's rights protections were coupled with calls for humanitarian action, often in the form of uh, development assistance or uh, charity charity causes. In, eight, in 1989, with the uh, shift to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, or the passage of that in most all uh, members of the UN, uh, with the exception, by the way, still of the United States, <laughs> Um, that convention shifted the focus from children as human rights victims to children as rights holders. So this was key. That was key. That was uh, very important. But (laughs) despite the shift, humanitarian orientations continued to dominate popular representations and public perceptions of children's rights. So, I mean, the point that that I try to make in the book is twofold, really. First, The trope of the child in peril has and continues to foster humanitarianism's encroachment on children's rights, taking it over, usurping that framework. Second, humanitarian orientations, in prioritizing rescue, which they do, they are failing to deliver political solutions or systemic remedies. Now, if that takes us back in some ways, I think, to the humanitarian figure of the child in peril, right? And that figure is tethered to struggles over perceptions of childhood innocence. So the child in peril trope, for example, is linked to racial racially exclusive notions of childhood innocence. Only certain children namely white children have had access to that quote unquote asset, right? That is childhood innocence and the protections it offers. Now, not all white children, of course, right? Their class differences, et cetera. Um, But the point is that from the mid 19th century on, it was very clear that white children were being construed as synonymous with innocence and with the ability to feel pain Whereas black children were construed as impervious to pain. Black children were viewed as incapable of feeling pain. And in that regard, served as the basis for slaveholders to place them outside the protected category of childhood innocence. There are numerous examples of this throughout history and a a great source that I draw on for parts of this overview of the figure of the child in peril and it's linked to childhood innocence is uh, Robin Bernstein's book. Uh, and, and one of the quotes that I take from her work uh, in the book, and if I can just find this one sec, is the idea of childhood innocence itself not being innocent, right? She says, quote, it's part of a 200 year old history of white supremacy. Childhood innocence then is raced white and it's a privilege to which only certain children have access. This reminds me, I mean, we can maybe come back to this later, but the debates going on right now, at least in Ohio, and I'm sure, and I know in Florida and some other states, on these quote-unquote uh, anti-woke laws and legislation, right? I've sat in the state house, giving testimony and listening, listening to testimony about why these bills that are that want to put constraints on um, academic freedom, on the teaching of, quote unquote, divisive concepts, right? I've sat in these, these Senate meetings, you know, public, public platforms where you can express your support or your, um, what your the fact that you're against these uh, potential laws. And what, I find over and over and what I've heard over and over again is that teaching about African American history or teaching about slavery teaching about any of these quote unquote divisive or difficult topics makes white children feel guilty and shame right so. I'm sitting there saying to myself, and I wasn't going there for research, I was just going there as, you know, a citizen, really, to see what was going on with my state. And here again, you know, the child in peril, but the white child in peril, who, you know, they're arguing is so vulnerable to uh, difficult information um, that it needs to be excised from the curriculum.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
1: I really appreciate you bringing up that example, because it not only helps listeners sort of gain a, a greater appreciation for exactly what it is that you're sort of arguing, um, but also, I think, it demonstrates the significance right, of, uh, of these arguments. Um, so you've, you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I, I want to go back to the title of the book, Violent Exceptions. Um, and I wanted to ask you to reflect a little bit on these two ideas, violence and exception.
2: A subsection in the introduction called Child in Peril, United States of Exception, I start off talking about Agamben's use of the concept of exception and the way in which he used that concept to distinguish between citizens in a juridical order and outsiders who are stripped of that juridical or political protection. These exceptions, those who are outsiders, quote unquote, stripped of that protection of the juridical, are rooted, he argues, in the modern state and the liberal legal tradition. In other words, a state of exception is part of liberalism, right? It's an example that's not related to, to my book, per se, but would be uh, renaming you know, political prisoners as enemy combatants and the renaming of them as enemy combatants and the detention of them or even torture of them is seen as legal because it's a state of exception and invokes a state of exception. So that's the kind of backdrop for that concept that I'm drawing on, right? And the other concept that I'm drawing on and working with is American exceptionalism. Which is the political ideology, right, grounded in the idea that personal freedom, religious liberty, individuality, et cetera, and the U.S. are unique, superior power, moral authority, the, the quote unquote city on the hill. So what am I arguing then about exceptionality in the child? Well, what I'm saying is that the, the figure of the child in peril is linked to American exceptionalism, that they support each other, that gendered and racial exceptions, right, are all have also been legal, legalized, right, in our in our laws. Those exceptions are seen as legal. So when I use the word exception, I'm not meaning outside of the juridical or the political or the commonplace. I'm saying that these are examples or exemplars that are reified by the law. So having spoke briefly about American exceptionalism as a political ideology, we also need to think about exceptional logics, laws, and outlooks that have a grave effect on how democracies, including the U.S., frame children's rights and respond to rights violations. The humanitarian figure of the child in peril, I argue, is central to both conservative and liberal logics. For example, under the Trump administration, childhood innocence appeared to be reserved for only white, able-bodied citizen children. The administration's recognition of childhood innocence and children's rights lied in an overarching overarching anti-immigrant, anti-Native American, and anti-LGBTQ directives. These directives included efforts such as rescinding uh, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, protections and birthright citizenship, and very hardline immigration demands, such as the Zero Tolerance Immigration Policy, which increased as Uh, The audience will remember the deportation of uh, unaccompanied minors and the separation of undocumented children from parents. So in this case, if you you remember some of the discourse surrounding um, the Trump administration's take on DACA and overall anti-immigration rhetoric, you know that the child in peril was a trope that was only afforded to children citizens of the United States whose parents or who themselves were victims of violence by an illegal or undocumented immigrant, right? So it was all about the nation state and its white citizens in particular's vulnerability to the quote unquote foreign other, right? So there's a really clear example of how the trope of the child in peril gets mobilized to reinforce certain logics. In this case, an anti-immigration logic, right? Conversely though, you can also uh, recall the Democrats at that time under the, the leadership of Nancy Pelosi coming up with a lot of talking points to the media, et cetera, about how we needed to heed the calls and cries of the children who were being encaged, separated from families at the border. Right. So they also the Democrats and the liberals also mobilized the figure of the child in peril from the opposite end. So you have a kind of war here going on that is is happening on the bodies on the bodies of children. Right. It's not just symbolic. It's literally playing out on the bodies and embodied by children.
1: Now, you, of course, have uh, in the book a a chapter that's uh, looking at uh, child border crossers. But I I want to jump ahead and ask you um, about your chapter two, um, which uh, considers um, two two people, uh, Malala Yousafzai and uh, Nadia Murad, as celebrity humanitarian figures. Um, Can you you tell us about your argument in this chapter?
2: So one of the things I was really interested in in this chapter was looking at how a figure like uh, Malala Yousafzai navigated the exceptional narratives. You know, she's an exceptional hero, exceptional survivor, exceptional humanitarian celebrity, how she herself navigates the exceptional narratives projected onto her, including that of the exceptional Muslim and how her navigation was quite sophisticated actually, and how she negotiated these very Western um, projections onto her, right? Malala Yousafzai, like Nadia Murad, are both global icons, right? They became global icons. And what that has meant is that their stories have served as a placeholder for the global North, for the US and the UK especially, Political and economic investments in the war on terror, right? The more recent case of gendered terrorism is, of course, of Nadia Murad and the marketing of her best selling memoir, The Last Girl, my story of captivity and the fight against the Islamic State. Now, she writes at the time of the memoir as a 21 year old Yazidi woman who was kidnapped and enslaved by ISIS. And in the chapter, what I'm looking at is how Nadia Murad becomes, quote unquote, legible as a Yazidi or non-Muslim terrorist victim. And as a human rights subject within U.S. and U.N. international contexts. And how does that happen? It happens in part through the collapse of the categories of woman and children. So although Malala, uh, Malala and Nadia's stories are caught between these debates about women's victimization and agency, Nadia's stories also caught between the discourses that underlie the U.S. war on terror and war on trafficking, specifically sex trafficking. So the chapter considers how the language or the discourse of sexual slavery, which was the case for Nadia, who was um, kidnapped by ISIS and became part of uh, the human sexual trafficking of um, women and girls, how the discourse of sexual slavery associated with early feminist abolitionist anti-trafficking campaigns intersects with the discourse on the U.S. war on terror. Now, that's a kind of complicated, I, I realized sentence that I just said. So let me just try to break it apart real quick. So Feminist abolitionist anti-trafficking campaigns are basically campaigns that are saying, um, are arguing for the elimination of prostitution and that conflate prostitution with human sex trafficking. So there's a problem in uh, the, the kind of liberal feminist abolitionist framework on sex trafficking because it's a category that is far too expansive, I would argue, right? But what happens with Nadia is that whole framework, that whole anti-trafficking, sex trafficking framework gets, ends up framing her situation for a lot of US audiences. Like Eve Ensler's you know, um, project, for example, and she endorses Nadia as a uh, hero. And Nadia is a hero. I mean, she's a survivor. She's amazing, right? She's a Nobel Peace Prize winner, just like Malala is. Uh, So I'm not criticizing either Malala or or Nadia or their stories. What I'm saying is that they're getting usurped, appropriated by different political um, constituents, I guess I would say, in the United States, whether they're feminist, abolitionist. And again, this is abolitionist in terms of Uh, anti-trafficking campaigns, not in terms of the prison industrial complex abolition. Um, So, yeah, I think I'll stop there.
1: So uh, something else that you um, uh, discuss in the book is uh, the criminalization of Black children. Um, I, I wonder if you could share with us some of your analysis there.
2: So that chapter, again, focuses on racialized childhoods in both international and domestic U.S. politics and law. And it's looking at the consequences of withholding the notion of childhood innocence from black youth in the U.S. through police profiling, vigilantism and state violence. So, for example, the state's refusal to recognize Trayvon Martin's legal status as a child in the case of State versus Zimmerman, and yet the mass circulation of records regarding his school suspensions, right, with little or no coverage of the racial distribution of punishments under Florida's public school zero tolerance policy, right, point to the entrenchment of a kind of anti-Black universal in the legal imaginary, right, surrounding stand your own laws. So one of the things I argue, and it's, it's a devastating uh, reality, is that not only did Martin not survive his childhood, right, his legal status as a child did not survive him even after death. So the chapter really is about the criminalization of black children, the debilitating logics of racism and absence of attention to the human rights of children of color in the US. And really the cruel fact that it's far more typical for black children to achieve status post-mortem.
1: It's a really powerful, uh, powerful chapter. Um, so you, you have a, a, a final chapter um, that's about transgender children and their rights. Um, can I ask you to, to talk a little bit about that?
2: Sure. So that chapter, um, Queer Optics, Humanitarian Thresholds and Transgender Children's Rights, focuses on, um, at the time of its writing at least, recent legal cases in the United States including the case at the center of the documentary film Growing Up Coy. Growing Up Coy is a documentary film about a six-year-old transgender child who was banned from using the girls' bathroom in a local school in Colorado. Growing Up Coy reveals the complicity of discourses about childhood protection and childhood innocence in rendering LGBTQ children, both hyper visible and also illegible, right? And that's the kind of paradox or contradiction that I was trying to think through in that chapter. And what I mean by that, the hyper visible and yet illegible, is that the risks of visibility for transgender children who are seeking access to public bathrooms, for example, of the gender with which they identify, not only out such children, but potentially expose them to greater harm. So it's a complicated scenario when transgender children are denied access to normative discourses, right? They're denied access to normative futures, right? Normative futures that are grounded in notions of heterosexual reproduction. So it's not only about the risks of vulnerability in cases such as uh, transgender children's access to public bathrooms or um, sports, et cetera, but it's also about how transgender children are denied a future, quote unquote, denied the discourse, denied the vision, denied the the, the right of having a future imagined that they can imagine, because those futures are so grounded in heterosexual reproduction.
1: Thank you for that. Um, so I, I want to emphasize for uh, listeners that there's obviously much, much more to the book that, that we've not talked about. Uh, for example, you have, uh, you have a chapter that's about disability uh, exceptionalism uh, that looks at African child soldiers and amputees. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you, uh, Wendy, sort of kind of looking back at your research and writing process, were there any challenges that you faced when you were putting together this book or any any behind the scenes perspectives that uh, that you know the, the like re- readers of the book might not necessarily know if they just read uh, sort of the the physical product at the end of it?
2: Yeah, well there there are always challenges in my work, especially because as a rhetorician, right, a rhetorical theorist interested in representations of vulnerable populations and in this case children, there's always the risk you know of people saying and 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 sometimes they do that you know why does this matter why does it matter that we study representations and and rhetoric and discourse like how how is that relevant when you have so many so much violence going on right and for me and for those in my field it's it's a question that we we have to address but that you know is central to the work we do and our beliefs which is that it does matter that representation, rhetoric, how we frame something matters because it, it, it frames what comes to matter and for whom, right? So it, I, I'm always interested in, in what gets political traction, right, what gets political traction and what frameworks get political traction and how do those frameworks delimit our understanding and our responses to injustice. And and again, so part of the argument is that the humanitarian paradigm of children's human rights, which plays in that childhood innocent space, that racialized space, is not doing children any good in the long term in terms of recognition of their rights, whether they're um, and their families' rights, whether they're economic, cultural, political, uh, etc., so that's always a challenge, I think. Um, you know, articulating why it matters, and I try to do that even more in this book um, than in previous books. Um, and I guess the the other challenge is, is always an ethical one. You know, it's the challenge it, it's the challenge of focusing on trauma, right? Representations of trauma. And in my case, they're archives. I'm not generating new data. So I'm not working with human subjects. So there's not the risk of exploiting uh, a human subject per se, but the ethical issues still carry forward even when you're dealing with representation, right? And that's what really prompted uh, the chapter on Malala and Nadia prompted me to say, okay, how are they navigating in discourse? The exceptional narratives projected onto them. Like it wasn't enough for me to just look at how our government, how conservatives, how you know Breitbart magazine is using Nadia as a figure to, to reinforce the war on terror, et cetera. It's not enough for me to just look at that. I have to also look at what the responses are to those whose image or experience or story or suffering is being mobilized and appropriated for some end. So it's it's always I'm always in that space to be honest. Always always in that space. Always struggling uh, with those questions and and sometimes they they do result in a different um, different content for the chapter. Adding memoirs would be you know one example.
1: Right, Han, I, I think your very sort of thoughtful approach uh, to these topics really comes across in the book as well. <clears throat> So, uh, Wendy, we've taken up a lot of your time, Um, so I just have a final question for you. Now, this book has been out for for a little while, Uh, so I'm wondering what is it that you're working on now?
2: So, um, I think I I alluded to this earlier, but um, I'm working on a piece that I'm tentatively calling uh, Fast Asleep, Anti-Woke Legislation and Human Rights Racism. Literally well, it's like going, working on it this afternoon. Um, but this piece is looking at um, the racist co optation of the child in tr- uh, peril tropes, namely the white child in anti woke legislation. So in Ohio House Bills 322 and 327, among others, which are part of a conservative push or, or were part of a conservative push, I should say, to drive Republicans to the uh, 2022 midterm election polls. But now are continuing to capitalize on white grievance, nativist narratives, backlash against the momentum of Black Lives Matter movement, et cetera. And I'm looking at the convergence here, trying to look at the convergence of right-wing moral panic, which is how I would frame it, about diversity, and anxieties over childhood agency and childhood innocence, namely anxieties about white childhoods and so the key tropes i guess or claims that i'm i'm trying to work through in that chapter is to think about how within anti-woke legislation and debates conservatives are fronting the traumatized white child as if the white child is being indoctrinated by left-wing ideology and 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 that fear that fearful rhetoric that they're perpetuating is informing their calls for the increased surveillance of teachers and of schools.
1: That sounds like a a, a fantastic, very interesting, and very timely and important uh, project. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for being on the show today, Wendy.
2: Thank you so much.
1: The book is Wendy Hesford's Violent Exceptions, Children's Human Rights and Humanitarian Rhetorics, published by the Ohio State University Press in 2021. Thank you for listening.